Phishing attack concerns have been heightened by the Epsilon email breach, which is believed to have exposed countless consumer email addresses affiliated with loyalty programs and marketing campaigns. How vulnerable are we to phishing, and subsequently ID theft, when fraudsters have access to email addresses and affiliations that link those addresses to other information? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Tim Rohrbaugh, Vice President of Information Security for Intersections, Inc., which provides the recovery service for the Identity Theft Assistance Center. Tim, before we get started, could you give our audience just a general idea about the state of phishing generally? Well, I think kind of maybe a broader overview or to back up just a little bit, I mean, phishing is simply a form of social engineering. Um, you know, not that I was around 150,000 years ago, but knowing human nature, I suspect that humans have been, uh, you know, manipulating other humans for the purpose of gaining confidential information since we could first communicate. Um, the job of social engineering today is made a little bit easier because of um, a lot of our evolved defenses are, are rendered useless. Um, you know, you can look at a person and make a characterization about it, whether they're a male or a female if they're in front of you, or maybe, um, you know, if they look confident or desperate. Um, and, and those things are are not available to you when you're dealing with email. So now we have to respond to an email or a text and react in the same way we would if facing somebody in person. Email, as a communication uh, medium, um, all we have to look for is a sender's name. Um, the links, which can be um, covertly uh, hid within the mail message itself, um, those have to be determined whether they're legitimate or not or whether they are leading off someplace that you didn't suspect. Um, the other thing to look for is the email timely. Uh, is it in context? Um, you know, did we just recently read from our financial institution that, uh, or local government that they would never send an email asking for this information. These are all things that we're trying to evaluate when the mail comes in and determine what we're going to do. You know, today, there's still not a good indication that the email is um, from a verified source. The mail servers in between are trying to do uh, authentication, but it's not fully implemented around the network. Uh, the junk mail filters, you know, work part of the time, um, and they have changed, you know, the type of phishing attacks have changed a little bit, um, and uh, I guess we can talk more about that as we go on. And that's what I was going to ask next, Tim. How have phishing attacks advanced? And when I talk about the advancement of phishing attacks, I'm talking about beyond just phishy links, what other types of techniques are fraudsters using to hijack personal information? Well, a thing along the lines of, of phishing attacks itself, you know, it used to be a shotgun approach. Um, get a large mailing list, send out um, any type of mail description or body text which would entice somebody to click a link or, or respond. Um, but that has, has changed. They know that, um, you know, they're probably getting the same respondents every time. So now they have to work down the food chain to the people who are maybe a little more cautious and then the mail has to come from, you know, a trusted source. It has to arrive as people expect to see it. Um, you know, it has to have certain details in the message body um, that add validity to it. Um, those things are along the lines of, you know, you've probably heard another term, spear phishing, where, in other words, they're focusing on an individual. Um, they're focusing a, an attack at an individual or a group of individuals or a role within organizations. They're even going to SEC filings and focusing on just um, executives within the company. And then the messages sometimes relate from one person in the company to another. 
and now phishing can be perpetrated in a number of ways. For instance, by asking consumers to visit a spoofed site that resembles a retailer or a bank, as you've noted with some of the spear phishing. They also can deploy malicious software when a consumer clicks on a link and basically hijack a consumer's computer. Which is most prevalent? Well, it's like this. I mean, again, it's a it's a technique for stealing information. So they're going to do whatever is most successful, and they vary it based on the information that they have. So does the percentage breakdown of um, of trying to get information out of an individual in the mail response versus trying to get them to click a link and maybe do a um, malicious code install? Um, do those percentages or those attacks vary? It does, but it actually varies based on who they're going after, what the population is, um, how much information they have about the individual or the company that they're going after. Um, so, you know, the the thing is, is it's the percentage breakdown. Um, it's probably good just to see how um, they're varying their tax, but in the end, it's um, it's going to happen, and so obviously. You have to work on the tech side and on the alerting side. And how concerned, Tim, should we be about phishing attacks relative to other types of fraud? Social engineering is a very successful tool for the criminal. Um, fraud is the result of the phishing attack. So phishing attack, just like um, you know, breaking into a bank, just like um, you know, stealing somebody's wallet, maybe is a crime for opportunity. Um, those are events in themselves, but what happens after that is the is the fraud, taking advantage or misuse of the ID or the individual. Um, and so that's, I mean, to distinguish between the two in your question, that's um, how I would focus on it. And then you've kind of answered my next question, or at least touched on it, and that's to ask, how vulnerable are consumers' identities when it comes to phishing? Well, no matter what we tell people, um, you know, and, and how to deal with information uh, coming across email, um, not remind them time and time again not to send sensitive information over email. Um, they believe, or many do, that this is a private communication between the people who are on that email message. I mean, they they can't lower their voice like they were in person or move away from other people from your shot. Um, they're communicating most of the time clear text between mail services, and there's a lot of people who have an opportunity to read that message, including the person on the other end who might not be the intended recipient. And what does this Epsilon breach tell us about the vulnerability of email addresses themselves? Email addresses have been vulnerable since email addresses were created. I mean, the first viruses, what did they do? They went in and they took your contact list and forwarded on the email or they sent back your entire contact list to a you know central warehouse where they would be used for subsequent attacks um, unfortunately the element the data element itself email address is is public in nature and so then the real key is is um, putting using that email address being able to use it in context so if I just send an, a mass emailing to for instance uh, you know, every, uh, this, this email list coming, reporting to be coming from uh, a financial institution, some of these people will have a relationship with that financial institution and some won't. So it's wasted communication from the criminal standpoint. If they can target the email message to the individual and know that they have a relationship with this company and maybe even know what products they had and maybe even know what 
prior communication they had, they'll have a higher success rate of the phishing attack. And how protected should email addresses be when it comes to ensuring online security and protection of identity? We've learned from the Epsilon breach that email addresses have historically not been deemed to be sensitive information. How should that change? Yeah, and that there's a the kind of a tricky answer to that because my peers, uh, who you know, information security folks, they are and have um, the right to force security controls down through their vendors when it comes to uh, credit card data or FSNs, credit data, so forth and so on. Email addresses um, usually not, and so the real key is who has the incentive to get this right, and the emailers really do because they want to increase their um, effectiveness to the mobile phones and all of that, and they need to have more data. So the real key is, first, they need to react to this. Um, you know, there are organizations out there who are putting together best practices, and um, email addresses in association with the companies which um, have given them the lists are, are important to protect that bit of information. And so self-regulation needs to happen, but then also the my peers need to drive the security requirements down to these vendors. Now, it's been said that privacy online is a bit of a misnomer, that it's impossible for consumers to be guaranteed privacy with any online function, and you've touched on this a little bit during the call today. How would you respond to that statement beyond what you've already shared? Well, you know, I believe anonymity, you know, is a right uh, when one's online, and that would be when it's appropriate. But when transacting high-trust um, transactions such as financial institutions, uh, government support, sites, commerce, um, your, your request for anonymity needs to be set aside, and you need to establish a relationship, prove who you say you are, so that that transaction can go forward. And you can maintain anonymity in those other cases, but it's a lot of work. Um, and that, that's really what it comes down to. The tools aren't necessarily there to make it easy, but it can be done today. And what industries, Tim, do you see as being the most vulnerable to phishing? Or which industries do you see creating the most vulnerabilities for the consumers that they work with when it comes to phishing attacks? Well, it's the ones who, and you say industries, it's probably more on um, you know, institutions or individual companies. But the more that um, a company or industry puts trust in the communication with the consumer, in other words, establishes with the consumer, um, you know, and represents that email is um, a form of communication where they, you can have high trust um, communication transactions, then or they're going to be um, vulnerable to these types of attacks. What a lot of companies have done over the last couple of years is to make sure that they communicate with the consumers and say, we will alert you to changes. This is a good alert mechanism, but with respect to email, we're never going to ask you for this information, your account names, passwords. We will never request you to go to you know, other sites, third parties. What we may do is request for you to come back to our site and um, come to a message area and look at details. So it really comes down to what they've established with the consumers is appropriate for email and what's not. Now, I've heard some industry experts talk about secure email, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about measures or controls financial institutions in particular, as well as other industries such as healthcare, should take to ensure that they're not inadvertently exposing consumers to phishing. Perhaps using something like secure email would be the answer. I think the first step in all of this is to deal with authentication. 
And if you look at um, some of the organizations like uh, Online Trust Alliance, who has done a report card, we see a lot of positive movement. We're talking about, um, you know, 50%, over 50% of leading businesses have adopted, it's called the FPF or DKIM. There are mechanisms for mail-server to mail-server authentication. 77% of Internet retail 100s of the Retail 100 have um, implemented email authentication. And so that that's kind of step one in the process. So that's mail server to mail server. But it needs to really go all the way down so that the consumer gets a visual indication, um, other keys that they can determine whether the, um, <laughs> whether the email is appropriate or not, whether it's coming from a trusted source. But unfortunately, if we look at examples like browsers where um, you may be uh, using Firefox and and have to click four times to accept uh, a certificate which is deemed inappropriate or, or suspect, suspect. Um, consumers just click through those things. So it's a, it's a behavioral change by consumers, too. They need to be cautious. Now, you've talked a little bit about consumer education, and when it comes to financial institutions, I know that a number have been working on consumer education campaigns. But if a breach does occur, if a consumer's identity is compromised via a phishing attack, how much responsibility should a banking institution or some other entity bear? Well, the, the real key is, first off, do they know about it? Um, you know, the unfortunately, the phishing attack is between the, um, the criminal or the criminal's tools and the consumers. And so they're outside of this communications if it's using the banks, the financial institutions' mail servers or misconfiguration of their mail servers, that's one argument, and they are responsible. If it's outside of that, then you know, then it's the consumers, and the consumers do feel responsible. Um, and I, I think really what we need to do as an industry is put together the, the correct tools, the visual indications, the, the notices, and let them react to it as they should. And before we close, Tim, what final thoughts would you like to share with our audience about the state of phishing attacks and online security generally? Online security generally has has, um, has gotten and, and made huge improvements over the last couple of years, and it's focused on very specific um, data elements. Um, but unfortunately, what's happening is is that the problem's not going away; it's getting worse, and it's not it's be, it's mainly because the persona that we've created for ourselves is being digitized, and more and more we're transacting in this disassociated, um, non-face-to-face world. And people need to be, and um, need to be very cautious, and they need need to be critical of communication, um, and they need to limit what information goes out instead of just sharing everything. Again, we've just heard from Ten Rohrbaugh, Vice President of Information Security at Intersections, Inc., which provides identity theft and risk management solutions. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.